You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, 14 Lectures, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is Lecture 5, given in Berlin on the 5th of December, 1912, entitled Results of Spiritual Research for Vital Questions and the Riddle of Death. The greatest riddles of life that are of general human significance do not arise as a result of any particular scientific research, but confront us in the daily course of life. And the greatest poser of questions is life itself, with its constant flow of questions that not only arouse our curiosity and our thirst for knowledge, but can signify happiness and sorrow, satisfaction or despair to our soul. Spiritual science, as it is presented here in these lectures, is primarily concerned with resolving these questions posed by life itself, insofar as it falls within the scope of human knowledge, with gaining insight into the mysteries of existence. Even though this spiritual science appears as something new and unfamiliar, as compared with the ordinary science of today, this can be understood by anyone who merely casts an eye at those branches of ordinary science that concern themselves with questions of the soul, with questions of spiritual life. What people today call psychology or soul science can, in what it presents to a large extent, be investigated, and one will find that the great questions of existence, the great riddles of life, are dealt with very inadequately in science as we ordinarily know it. One of the greater soul researchers of the present, Franz Brentano, has remarked in his title Psychology on how one finds questions answered, or how, at any rate, people attempt to answer them, in ordinary psychological research, how one idea follows another, how one feeling awakens another in the soul, how those soul forces may perhaps develop within our consciousness to which we give the name of memory. All this, says Franz Brentano, could not possibly be a substitute for what psychological research formerly sought to establish as, in a certain sense, a solution to the mystery associated with the notion of the immortality of man's being. Similarly, today, one will search in vain in ordinary treatises about psychology for answers to questions such as the immortality of the soul, and also to other questions. Indeed, such questions are not even raised in the context of ordinary research. One very basic way of approaching the most everyday great riddles of life is to raise the question, how is a person supposed to cope with himself and with the world when his experience of himself is such that at every age he becomes different, that as he grows older new tasks are placed before him in his life between birth and death. 
How should a person answer the great riddle of existence that presents itself to him every day, and which, as anyone can observe, is intimately connected with a person's entire being? The great riddle as to the source and significance of the fact that everything that from morning until evening floods our lives in waking consciousness by way of ideas, impulses, desires, passions, emotions, and so forth, is submerged when we go to sleep into a vague and indeterminate darkness when we begin the new day. Sleep and waking, which are so intimately connected with the riddle of human existence, are phenomena regarding which science must confess and must continue to confess that it has hardly anything to say by way of an answer to these riddles. And then there is the riddle of death that was mentioned previously. That riddle regarding which a significant researcher of recent times already referred to here has nothing further to say other than what results from the observation of the outward nature of the body. At the very beginning of his title Principles of Physiology, Huxley cites the words of the melancholic Prince of Denmark, quote, Imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. Oh, that that earth which kept the world in awe should patch a wall to expel the winter's flaw. Close quote. And he goes on to explain what he wants to say by showing that the separate material parts of which man is composed are, when he crosses the threshold of death, so to speak, gradually scattered to the four corners of the earth and turn into other material substances which are all around us. And how, if we would seek what has become of a human being, we would have to look for the material atoms where they are to be found after a certain time in the cosmic expanses. That what has become of the atoms of the great Caesar is certainly not the question that actually concerns the human soul, is something of which ordinary science is blissfully unaware. For the real question is this, where are the soul forces that were active within Caesar? What has happened to them? How are they working further in the world? That this is the great question is something that ordinary science can no longer even feel. And then there is that question which is included in the significant word, in quotes, destiny. The destiny question that pursues us at every step in life and which presents us with the riddle that manifests itself to us everywhere. We see a human individual enter into existence, born in a state of misery and need, so that we can predict at his cradle that the lot that he has been granted will not be favorable. Or we see him enter life and with seemingly little in the way of attributes, so that we can again foresee that he will be of small advantage to himself or to others. In the case of another person, we see that he enters life amidst good fortune and abundance, surrounded by caring hands from his cradle, endowed with attributes which show from the outset that he could, both for himself and his fellow human beings, become a useful part of the world order. How much of everything that we associate with happiness and sorrow and which comes toward us on a daily, even an hourly basis, 
is included in this question of destiny. One could say that the great questions of existence only begin from where science stops. And anyone who tries to familiarize himself with a world conception that is predicated by purely scientific foundations will say to himself, What has been presented to me in terms of a summary, however well expressed, of scientific truths shows to me only the beginning of the questions that I must raise regarding the great riddles of existence. I find little by way of answers there. With respect to all this, one must, however, emphasize that the present-day cultural environment offers scarcely any possibility for entering into questions that are of vital importance for the human soul, for the simple reason that as a result of facts and phenomena that have featured over the course of recent centuries and which will be addressed in the coming lectures, the habits of thought, the conceptions underlying human thinking, have been directed more toward the outward material realm and only really feel at ease when they can associate something with the judgment and research that derives from the world of appearances or which is accessible to brain-bound thinking. For the most part, these habits of thought have been deprived of the possibility of acquiring insight into the human soul, of perceiving those events that are enacted specifically within the soul as opposed to the body. It is probably already apparent from the lectures given this winter that the answering of these questions does not have so much to do with whether a person is, through following the paths into supersensible life, as have been indicated in the last lecture, able to gain insight into those realms where answers can be given to the questions referred to. It has been emphasized on several occasions that certain things have to be researched on this path, but that the unprejudiced human understanding, one's unprejudiced judgment, is thoroughly capable of seeing what supersensible research is able to give. If this is so, it will also be understandable that the path of supersensible knowledge described in the previous lecture always gives the possibility of rightly comprehending what is in any case present in life what life offers in every situation, and of receiving, through a right perception, answers to the great riddles of existence. The spiritual aspect of man's being is present everywhere. It is always there. And in order that it may impart to us knowledge of its immortality, it is not so much necessary for there to be a direct insight into the supersensible world as, rather, a right view such as can be evoked and explained, of what is actually going on within our life of soul. In evaluating what is referred to here as spiritual science, attention should mainly be directed toward the way in which life is considered, the way in which the phenomena of soul life are presented through the particular quality of thinking brought about by spiritual science. Anyone who wishes to examine this precisely will find that spiritual science considers the phenomena of soul life in connection with the outer life of material existence in such a way that the great riddle of existence referred to is approached out of a direct observation of life. It has already been indicated several times 
that spiritual science today is in a similar situation to natural science at the time of the dawn of the modern cultural period. When, for example, Francesco Redi expressed the great truth that is accepted as normal and is universally acknowledged. Something living can only arise from the living. With this a powerful prejudice was combated, an assumption that was at the time not only confined to the general public but dominated science as a whole, and this time lies only a few centuries in the past. In that some three centuries ago, when Francesco Redi was writing, people believed that lower animals, such as fish, earthworms, and the like, can arise from river sludge simply through the fusion of outward material substances. Francesco Redi showed that this was an inexact observation. He showed that no living existence can arise without a germinal essence deriving from a comparable living source being incorporated in the unorganized material substance and formulated the proposition Something living can only arise from the living. Within the limits in which this proposition is being spoken of here, it is acknowledged by everyone from Hackel to Dubois-Raymond. This was not so at the time of Francesco Redi. He first had to show how only an inexact observation could give rise to the belief that non-living matter could form itself into something living. Spiritual science is today in the same position with regard to the spirit as Francesco Redi was with regard to the living. Through the way that it is able to observe soul phenomena, spiritual science shows today that it amounts to an inexact observation if one believes that what comes into existence by way of a person's inner soul life could derive, for example, from inheritance, from the parents or grandparents and so on or could derive from what a person's soul receives into itself through outer experience, through an experience of the surrounding world. Spiritual science is obliged to show that the belief that that could be so rests just as much on an imprecise observation as the belief that a living form could develop out of non-living substance. Just as non-organic matter can only be composed from a living seed, So everything that the human soul forms for itself from inherited characteristics and qualities, everything that it receives from the outer world through the senses and through the intellect, can only be linked together with what lives and weaves within us as a living soul nature, if there is a living spiritual seed, a germinal spirit essence that embraces both the inherited characteristics and everything that is taken in from the surrounding outer world. Spiritual science takes this germinal, spiritual, or soul essence into consideration, and with this it is at variance with the very widespread prejudice of present times. If one speaks today of the special character of the human soul, if one speaks of everything that a human being represents, one will, and this is what has occurred as a result of the most conscientious research that needs to be recognized in its own way, refer to this or that which has been, in quotes, inherited from ancestors. People will always try, as it were, to link what lives within the human soul and what a person develops with one or another cause that lies within the line of inheritance, which they will allow to be influenced only by what streams in from without as a means of fashioning the whole nature of the human soul.
a certain harmony between natural science and spiritual science, will come about in this realm if one gives consideration to a question that spiritual science must constantly have in mind when there is any discussion of the essential nature of the human soul and of inherited characteristics, a question that is connected to the continuing existence of the whole human race or species. Within the line of descent, within what is passed on through the generations from grandfather and father to the son and so on, we see characteristics being inherited from generation to generation. But one thing comes toward us as a question if we consider this succession of human existence in the course of the generations. That at a certain time man, as it were, attains manhood, sexual maturity. He is capable of bringing forth his own kind and therefore has the capacities which must exist in order that he may do so. As regards human evolution, therefore, what happens until sexual maturity is that until this point man develops all the capacities which make it possible for him to bring forth a being of his own kind. But after sexual maturity man continues to evolve. New forms, new content of the soul also appear after sexual maturity. And it is impossible to bring what the soul undergoes in its evolution after sexual maturity into connection with the whole evolution of the human race in the same way as that which a person passes through until sexual maturity as regards the human species. A sharp distinction must be made in man's whole relation to the world with respect to his evolution until sexual maturity and with respect to the time afterward. This is a question which, as we shall shortly see, can be properly considered only by spiritual science. Another highly significant question emerges with this, which shows how what can be characterized with the term heredity should be understood in contrast to what takes place wholly in the human soul and belongs to human evolution. We can come to an understanding of what appears in a person and clearly manifests itself as a product of heredity within the human race by means of a radical instance, where something is inherited under all circumstances simply by virtue of his being a human being who is descended from a being of a similar nature, a being of his own kind. Such a case is, for example, the change of teeth in approximately the seventh year of life. This is something that lies within the forces that the person has inherited and which manifests themselves under all circumstances, even if we separate the individual concerned from the human community and deposit him on a solitary island where he would grow up in an uncivilized manner. So is it with all qualities that have their origin purely in the line of inheritance. But if we take something that is as intimately connected with the human soul as language, we immediately find that the concepts of inheritance are of no avail. Where it is justified to speak of inheritance, the inherited features appear, as in the case of the change of teeth. Whereas, if we take someone to a solitary island and let him grow up without human contact, so that he does not hear the sound of a human voice, he will not develop language. This means that there is something here that shows us that there is something in the human soul that is not linked to heredity in the same way 
as the forces that we have primarily to regard as being inherited. Thus we could cite much that would show us how little one can rely on the forces of inheritance for an explanation of the totality of man's being. But when it comes to the study of the spiritual world through spiritual science, people make one error after another, errors that must simply be regarded as errors in logic, when they embark on making their judgments with a whole set of preconceptions. Thus, for example, they think that spiritual science wants to reject everything that natural science has to say, whereas it actually has the highest respect for the achievements of natural science. Thus, this is thought, for example, when spiritual science asserts that what we call the essence of the human soul derives not from the parents, grandparents, and so on, but can be traced back as a soul-spiritual kernel to a previous human life, far distant in time. So that spiritual science says that a human being does not have only one but many earthly lives. When we make our way into earthly life through birth, a soul essence or kernel enters into existence, which has received certain qualities, certain forces in earlier earthly lives. By virtue of the fact that it has received these forces in previous earthly lives and has, as it were, concentrated them within itself, it enters in a certain way into a new body, a new physical environment. Just as the living seed is incorporated in physical life into its inorganic surroundings and from there takes up inorganic forces and substances, so does this human soul essence, coming from previous earthly lives, approach the inherited characteristics, concentrates and links them together, takes what the outer world can give, and thus forms and shapes the new life, which we then lead through the time from birth until death. The present life is again such a drawing together, partly of the inherited characteristics, and partly of what the outer world offers us. And when we pass through the gate of death, this soul essence is at its most concentrated. Then in the time between death and a new birth, it passes through a purely spiritual existence, and when it has, in this state, achieved the necessary maturity, enters through a new birth or conception into a new earthly life. That any aspect of conscientious and well-researched scientific results should be at variance with or even only affected by such insights as spiritual science is an unfortunate but nevertheless widely held prejudice. As has already been stated, spiritual science fully understands when a scientist comes along and shows how, through the mingling of the paternal and maternal seed, a particular individualization of the child's germinal essence takes place in each individual case and how different the individualities of the various children can be as a result of the mingling of the paternal and maternal elements. Spiritual science fundamentally does not involve itself with the trivial assertion that it would be a proof for the existence of a distinct human individuality that in one and the same family the children are different both individually and from one another, for this individualizing element can be understood from the different ways that the paternal and maternal elements intermingle. If, moreover, the ordinary scientist comes and draws attention to how 
what a person manifests in life could be an indication of a particular organic constitution or of a particular formation of the brain or some such thing, spiritual science is in full agreement with this. And it is a sign of dilettantism in spiritual science not to go along with it. But if what natural science has with full justification to say in this realm is intended as an objection to what spiritual science indicates, that in spite of all that natural scientific research would propound, the sole essence of a human being first approaches the inherited characteristics in order to form a life, one is making a logical mistake which can be characterized in approximately the following way. Let us suppose that someone sees another person before him who is breathing healthily, and he says that this person is alive and is now standing before me as a living being is due to the air and the lungs that are manifest here. Who would deny that this is completely true? Just as little as this can be denied by any kind of spiritual science, it can, similarly, not be disputed when the natural scientist comes and takes into consideration the material conditions from the line of inheritance in order to explain the individual form of the soul life. This is just as true as if the ordinary scientist were to say, this person I see before me is living at this moment because he has the air outside him and a set of lungs inside him. Is therefore someone who researches the natural world entitled to refute spiritual science when it says, in spite of everything that has been said here, what has taken place in your soul is determined, is soul spiritually determined, in a purely spiritual way, by what the soul has experienced in former lives. In spite of everything, the whole of a person's destiny is determined by the fact that he has himself prepared this destiny in previous lives. No, the natural scientist should not feel entitled to dismiss the spirit researcher when he makes such an assertion. The natural scientist who says that the person who is standing before me is living at this moment because of the air outside him and the lungs within him should no more be dismissing what the spirit researcher says than he is entitled to disregard someone who says, no, it is not because of this that he lives, but he is alive at this moment through something quite different. This person wanted to hang himself, and he would quite definitely have departed this life through his suicidal attempt at that time, if I had not come, I intervened, and because of this he is alive now. So from this we see how the objective truth, that the person concerned is alive only because of the air and the lungs, does not conflict with the fact that he is alive at this moment, only because the other person intervened. This latter, incontrovertible truth, is no less at variance with the knowledge of the natural scientist that a person lives because of the existence of air and lungs, then what natural science has to say contradicts what spiritual science asserts, namely that the ultimate spiritual foundations for human existence lie in repeated earthly lives. Thus it is a matter of looking appropriately at the right thing, and we can well exemplify this by considering speech. Every spirit researcher who looks into the depths of things and understands natural science, can understand that one can easily be tempted to say 
that a person is able to speak because he has a speech center in his brain. There's quite certainly some truth in this, but it is equally true to say that this speech center of the brain was only formed into a living speech organ through the existence of the world of language. Language has created the speech center. Similarly, all the formations of the brain and of man's entire organism have been created through soul spiritual factors. It is they that have imprinted something of a spiritual nature upon the undefined human material substances. Thus we need to search for the truly creative aspect of man's soul essence or soul kernel in the soul spiritual domain. We should regard the soul spiritual element not as a result of the brain, but in contrast, the brain with its refined formation as a result of soul spiritual influences. When we consider human life, it manifests itself to us at every point such that we feel that what has just been said is reinforced by looking at life in a balanced and healthy way. Let us, for instance, again consider what we may call human evolution as it unfolds in terms of the species, what therefore also develops within a person when, so to speak, the forces working within heredity are fully developed, when he has developed the sexual maturity to bear within himself the forces that are able to bring forth a being of his own likeness. In contrast, the soul forces that constitute human evolution manifest themselves quite differently if we compare them to those forces that are present throughout human life as those that are, for example, developed in maintaining the species in reproduction. Within what lies in the reproductive forces, we see how, as it were, everything develops from within outward, how through the forces that are active in this realm a person brings forth beings of his own likeness, that is, how what is within him is externalized. The forces that belong to inner human evolution take the precisely opposite path. One has but to be able to regard the spiritual domain in general as something real. One will then from the outset, be able to accept the considerations that will now be presented as justified. How do we live our life if we take the inward soul aspect into consideration? We live it in a totally opposite sense from the way that we live our life as a member of the human race. As regards the species, all development takes place outwardly. In the individual life, all development is inwardly oriented. It occurs in such a way that we take that which comes toward us from without into ourselves and develop it further, and do not thrust it out as with reproduction, but that we concentrate what we experience in this way with ever greater intensity within ourselves, as it were, all the more intensively divest it of its character as something from the outside world and make it the content of our own ego. Anyone who considers human life without preconceptions will find how it would, for example, be impossible for one's soul life ever in a single moment to have in its recollections everything that the soul is capable of remembering 
from what it has experienced. Let us imagine that one of the people sitting here were in this moment to have all the concepts, ideas, feelings, emotions, and so forth that have ever lived in his soul. This would be completely impossible. But has what we have previously experienced, what we have inwardly received, become lost because at this moment we are unable to recall it? It is not lost. If we compare our soul life in successive moments of time, we shall find that what we have apparently forgotten, but has developed within us, and has made us a different person, is quite possibly more important than what we remember. In the course of our development, we do indeed always become a different person. We feel ourselves imbued with an ever-changing content. If we observe ourselves as we are now and compare ourselves with what we were some ten years ago, we will not deny that we are a different person and that what has brought this about are the assimilated experiences that have streamed into us, have been apprehended by us, and have taken the opposite path from the forces that serve reproduction. It is as though with our intuitive vision, with our reflections upon our memories, We destroy what we experience, but thereby take it into our ego. Our ego becomes continually different. Hence we can say that an exact observation of life shows us how this ego changes throughout life and how it is the assimilated experiences that have brought about this change. We feel how the ego becomes inwardly fuller, ever richer and more imbued with forces than it was when we embarked upon our youthful lives. At the foundation of this is a very significant phenomenon of life to which insufficient attention is normally paid. Goethe, whose knowledge of life was profound and who viewed life above all else in the way that it presented itself to him in his own personality, expressed the thought, in old age we become mystics. What did he mean by this? What does Goethe mean by becoming a mystic? We must distance this thought from any suggestion of unclear, vague ideas. Goethe meant that as a person becomes more and more mature, he has increasingly less of what the world offers him outwardly, and that the forces of experience well up from the reserves within his own soul, wherein he has let them be submerged. Quote, a person becomes a mystic, close quote, means that his soul has become ever more full. It has come to contain more and more forces in its inner regions. If we look more carefully at what it is that our soul essence has brought together within us, at how it has assimilated what it has experienced and what it has made out of it, we will be able to bring those who have independently of their age become mystics a little further on the track of what is actually going on within the human soul. Let us consult the mystics. What do mystics mostly speak about? They speak of a, in quotes, second self, of a, in quotes, higher man within a person, of how in this human ego that develops within us from our youth onward, a second ego or self can unfold which many mystics interpret as being divine. 
But the point is not to emphasize this, but rather as they have felt that as a person grows up, something akin to a second human being matures that he takes hold of, that concentrates itself within him. We see the exact opposite with reproduction, whereby a second human being is born alongside the first and is thrust away from it, whereas what becomes the, in quotes, second self is not something that a person thrusts away from himself, but develops inwardly to a point of ever greater concentration. Thus we can actually say that as a person lives his life, he develops within his individuality something that works in the opposite direction to reproduction. He does not give birth to anything out of himself. He concentrates something within himself. He does not let something go forth from himself, but imbues himself with something that the mystic can well relate to as a second man, who, as it were, develops within the skin of the first and attains an ever greater degree of soul-spiritual definition. This is in the case of different people either more or less obvious, but the significance of such a course of human development is that the germinal process that we undergo is of an opposite nature, where we do not unfold, but on the contrary, concentrate something within us. If we call the direction associated with reproduction one of evolution, of unwinding or unfolding, we can call that which the ego undergoes as involution, an in-winding, an inner forming of experiences. And it is natural that the inner vigor which the developed ego bears within itself as a second ego or self is the greatest when we are at the end of our physical life, thus when we pass through the portal of death. If we examine this and submit to greater scrutiny what has in this way come into being as a second self, we would have to say that people are not always inclined to look at this more closely. They become taken up with their lives, and they do not pay sufficient attention to the second being that is being developed. But if they devote enough attention to it, they will find that this second being has quite particular qualities, above all a very significant urge to have an independent and free relationship to what we are able to receive in later life. In life, as it proceeds, we will be living in a particular linguistic environment. However, what we have developed inwardly aspires toward a certain liberation from what only one particular linguistic environment can give, and to nurture a view of life that is free and independent from any specific linguistic environment. We want to grow beyond what one particular linguistic environment can give, and we thereby grow beyond that in which we had grown up when we were young. In our younger years, for example, we have to develop a certain formation of the ear. From what we develop within our ego, we notice that it is something that always wants to be freer and freer from our outward bodily nature. We are forming a new human essence that is independent of what has been fashioned from the outward physicality of our early life. This is what spiritual science would guide the soul toward that from the human ego, a second ego or self is developed in the course of life, whose nature consists in that it feels itself all the fuller, 
and all the more intense to the extent that it can feel itself independent of what has grown up from its early days. And if we consider this second ego that has been formed within our ego more carefully, we will see that it is endowed with such forces that we can characterize its whole nature by saying, this ego bears within itself the forces to form a new, a different human being from the one through which it has itself been fashioned. It is not an analogy, but merely a clarification if we say that the ego that we have within us can be compared with the seed of a plant that has been formed from the root through the stem and the green leaves to the blossom. It is then most fully endowed with life and provides the foundation for a new plant. The whole being of the plant has come together in the seed, and when the seed is ripe, the stem, green leaves, and blossom die off. It is thus that a soul's spiritual essence matures with us. Just as the seed of the plant continues to grow when the leaves fade and the outer physical form of the plant approaches death, so does the soul's spiritual essence within man mature as the outward aspect gradually dies when the organs gradually lose their vigor and approach their demise. With this we have a right soul observation of the distinctive fact that comes to expression in that the inner strength of a new ego is at its greatest when we pass through the portal of death. Thus we bear this system of forces, these force relationships, through the portal of death into a world that can have nothing to do with the world within our body. Even if we do not want to pursue any further, the following lectures will show this, how the spirit researcher can also show us what happens with this soul-spiritual essence developed within the ego in a purely spiritual world which a human being experiences in a life that lies between death and a new birth, we can nevertheless say, in the same way that the natural scientist proceeds when he wants to understand plants, we can likewise proceed if we want to understand human nature. The natural scientist directs his attention to the seed of the plant and sees how the seed can enable the life of a new plant to flourish. Thus he seeks to understand the new plant from the basis of the seed, how the seed that remains appears again in a new plant. Similarly, the spirit researcher can observe man, how he enters life through birth or conception. We see how to begin with man manifests outwardly only that his organs are fashioned in a certain way. There then appears that soul life that we have characterized by saying that the time when it appears also marks the moment until which he is later able to remember. Then he will say to himself, Before this time I was quite obviously already there, but I am only able to remember back to a certain time. This is that point in time when a person becomes capable of feeling himself as an ego. But there can be no doubt that he is already present as a being of soul and spirit. Why, spiritual science may ask, does the possibility of being able to remember back appear only from a certain time? Were the inner forces that bring this about not previously present? It would be a completely illogical thought to conceive of the soul-spiritual dimension of man's being 
as beginning only at the time back to which a person can subsequently remember. The sleep of every day can teach us how the soul-spiritual forces live in us before retrospective memory awakens. People today have all sorts of strange ideas about sleep. The right way of looking at it has already been partly addressed in the lectures about waking and sleeping. Thus, people today have the idea that sleep could only be brought about by something such as tiredness. I beg the listeners to the earlier lectures to be aware that spiritual science wishes to be precise in what it says. If someone were to say that spiritual science has itself declared that sleep derives from tiredness, this is not quite correct, for it was said that sleep is needed to take tiredness away. In spiritual science, it is always of importance to understand things very precisely, because there also has to be the endeavor to describe things with a similar precision. Can tiredness be the cause of sleep? Anyone who maintains this will be contradicted by life itself. Anyone who maintains that a person has to sleep only because he is tired will find himself contradicted if he engages in self-observation, or if he considers how often a pensioner, who is not at all tired, goes to sleep in the afternoon in his chair, despite not being in the least tired. And he will especially be refuted if he takes into consideration when sleep mostly happens not when people are most tired, but in childhood. There needs to be accurate observation of what actually happens. Spiritual science shows that both during the ordinary state of sleep and also during the more subdued state of consciousness of a child, the forces that are used for consciously experiencing the world are sent into the organism and are active there. The same forces that we use from waking up until going to sleep in order to form ideas, sensations, and so on, work on us during sleep, but in such a way that the bodily forces that have been used up are replaced, are again restored. So they regenerate us, they repair what has been used up and is worn out, they form and work restoratively, whereas in waking life they break up and disfigure the form, and this is indeed what we do during waking life. Sleep enables the form to be restored, that is, it works directly on the human physical structure. Because during sleep we are frequently using our forces of consciousness for building up certain forces that have fallen into disrepair, these forces withdraw from us and we sink into a state of unconsciousness. Because at the beginning of life, Before the moment arrives, until which we are later able to remember back, we in early childhood use the same forces that live in us and fill our consciousness for the more refined process of forming the organization of the brain. They withdraw from the conscious ego. The ego is present during early childhood, and it is a strange situation today if the way that the ego first appears is regarded as a determining factor in the study of human nature, again a significant error of logic. You can read whole volumes today where it is stated, we see how self-consciousness emerges, how it becomes established in a human being. One cannot think of anything more misleading than this, and in any other area one would strictly reject such a declaration. 
just as it would, for example, be rejected in the case of someone whose knowledge of a clock was confined solely to his awareness of how it is made. In no realm is this so. Similarly, with regard to self-consciousness, if one would examine how ideas are engendered, one would show the extent of the errors that are made in this respect. This can be done only by someone who concerns himself with such things from the point of view of spiritual science. Otherwise, people do not notice this. Ego consciousness, self-consciousness, is of such a nature that the gradual knowledge of the ego, of how it develops, has nothing to do with the reality of the ego itself. On the contrary, because the ego, the essence of human nature, evolves continually from the time when it is not yet conscious in the child until the time when it is experienced consciously, we cannot say that it is not there. It is there. It fashions the human being in his more refined aspects. Indeed, moreover, it fashions the human being in his connection with the whole of human life something that we notice only if we study human life in a more or less selfless way. In the manner in which a person ordinarily observes life, he can say with respect to his destiny, I meet with one or another aspect of it. I have a liking for the one, but not for the other. I regard one as good fortune, the other as misfortune. The one is something that expedites my progress in life, the other is something that impedes it. However, this is only a superficial observation, for it could be possible for someone to be convinced that in every moment of his life he is nothing other than his concentrated destiny. That I am speaking to you now, what does it mean? It means that it is my concentrated destiny. My life experiences are being expressed to you and I am nothing other than my life experiences, my destiny. And were I to take something away from my destiny, I would have to cut out part of myself. A human being is what he has made of himself, what his destiny is, what he is in a given moment. We cannot separate our ego from ourselves, from our destiny, or regard the ego as something different as regards its content from destiny. But in that we are, as a child, placed in a particular life's circumstance, we see how we are not only determined by our attributes, by our ego, even if we are not as yet aware of this, since our ego works through our blood circulation, and since it will also subsequently develop quite definite attributes, and so on. But we also see that we have been placed in a particular national context, that we are children of particular parents and have grown up in a particular climate and have to live together with certain people. In this way we see that for our whole life we are determined by destiny. If we examine what we are consciously able to pursue and identify as our destiny, it is natural that we must identify this as the destiny associated with our ego. Just as we have, through our circumstances, been placed in a life that is either arduous and burdensome or surrounded by caring hands. It is not only our later destiny that is connected with what we have ourselves done, but also the strokes of destiny that have come to us from the unconscious 
and whose origins we are unable to follow with our consciousness. Thus we are led to the sole spiritual essence that contains within it all the forces that fashion the brain, formed the blood system, and so on, and thereby defined us. But we are also defined as regards our destiny by the same ego that has been placed in a particular life circumstance. In the realm of nature observation, this is admitted by every individual when he says, for example, when I observe an alpine plant, I know that the whole of alpine nature belongs to it, and therefore the alpine plant cannot grow on the plain. What everyone admits in the realm of nature observation needs only to be applied to the soul spiritual essence. One will then see that the soul spiritual essence which pervades its bodily nature seeks out this bodily nature and enters into it, while on the other hand it also seeks out its destiny. If this destiny is felt to be harsh, and it is then said to the person, you have created this situation for yourself, you have brought this upon yourself through your soul spiritual essence, if one ascribes the full responsibility for the harshly experienced destiny to the person concerned, this feeling is nevertheless based on a short-sighted observation. A deeper principle would judge differently and we can gain an understanding of how it would do so if we draw a comparison from life by way of an example. Let us imagine a young man who, having a prosperous father, has been living at his father's expense and has not needed to worry about anything. Then the father, for some reason, loses his means of livelihood, and the son can no longer live in the way he did before. He will perhaps say, What a bitter blow I have suffered! How unfortunate I am! But if he has learned something, if he has been buffeted by life and has become a capable person, will he, when he has reached the age of fifty, say something of that kind? No, he will now perhaps say, That turn of destiny was something of a blessing for my personal life, for I would otherwise have become a good-for-nothing. This misfortune of my father has contributed to my happiness." What can be said from the standpoint of eighteen years is not especially far-sighted. At fifty, we can see further. The deeper life principle within us seeks out misfortune. It seeks out hardship and misery, because it is only through the overcoming of hindrances amidst hardship and misery that we have developed further, and thus become something that we would not have become otherwise. Viewed from a higher vantage point, and once we have admitted that there is in a person a deeper essential nature that goes from life to life and makes it necessary for us to regard life from a higher vantage point, much immediately becomes understandable to us. If we are able to see a person in such a way that as he approaches old age he develops within himself a system of forces that prepares the way for a new human being, who is well-nigh independent from what he has outwardly developed from his previous life or from the circumstances of his present life, and if we see how he carries an inner tension of forces through the portal of death, then we can say, this human individual cannot now return into existence immediately after death. Why not? What would happen if he did so? 
he would find the outward environment still similar to that from which he has just departed and from which he wanted to become free by developing his inner soul essence. Just as the inner soul essence does not have a direct relationship to itself such that it wants to revert to being merely itself, so is a person unable to incarnate again immediately after death, for he would be growing into himself. This means, however, that the inner soul essence can reincarnate only after a certain time. During this time he lives in a purely spiritual atmosphere, not in the physical world. What has developed as a spiritual essence has developed in such a way as one sees the seed of a plant developing within the stem, leaves and blossom, lives in a spiritual world, and it will feel itself drawn to embody outwardly what it has developed when other circumstances have emerged, that is, when the earth has changed such that the person concerned is growing into different circumstances, thus enabling him to develop further. Thus between death and the next birth, so much time will elapse that we will, for example, not be born into the same linguistic area, and that other associated circumstances will also have changed. We know that outward earthly circumstances change over the course of centuries and millennia. We learn about what has taken place in the meantime, outwardly, in cultural terms, through being informed about it, through education. Thus with our soul spiritual essence we, therefore, take our leave from a particular time in history with the forces that we wanted to make free and wait until new circumstances have been brought about on the earth, whereas we have to catch up on what we have not in the meantime been able to participate in through education. Thus education and instruction have to supplement the attributes and capacities that we bring as the fruit of previous lives. In the relatively short time available, I have only been able to indicate what one may call a way of observing the circumstances in which the human soul finds itself. I have sought to ensure that this study is on the one hand strictly scientific, but that on the other hand something real is seen in these soul-spiritual experiences and that it can be perceived how in a person, as he lives amongst us, there is already being developed what will appear in a next life as a seed that draws upon the forces of inheritance together with the forces of the outward environment in order to develop further. Such a way of looking at the world as emanates from spiritual science can have an eminently sound influence not only upon theoretical life questions, but upon strength and certainty and upon the power of life itself. Anyone who for reasons of his own does not want to familiarize himself with spiritual science will not see that a sound and healthy outer life is conditional in many essential ways on a sound and healthy soul life, that such a soul life raise its forces into one's bodily nature and that if the soul has become empty and desolate and is unable to draw forth from itself what fills its consciousness with a sense of satisfaction, 
then dissatisfaction, disconnectedness, a tendency of the soul life to be engulfed in confusion, manifests itself in nervousness and other unhealthy symptoms right down into the physical organism. Someone who does not see this may nevertheless experience it. Life poses the greatest riddles. And in instances that have significance for everyone, something occurs which one can only express by asking, from where else do certain illnesses afflicting a life that is discontent with itself derive then from the fact that the soul life is unable to regain health, is bereft of inner substance, and is therefore incapable of exerting its influence upon the bodily nature. But someone who finds the possibility of bringing the health-giving influence of a healthy soul life to bear upon the physical body will also be able to say the following. When a person in our time refers again and again to inherited qualities, and with respect to one thing or another, for example to a disposition toward a certain illness, claims that this has been inherited from his ancestors and there is nothing he can do about it, this idea is one that inevitably oppresses him in his deepest inner soul life and signifies a depressive soul condition which rapidly exercises an unfavorable influence upon the outward life of the body. And this is felt by the person concerned as a dispiriting influence that cannot be changed because it lies wholly in the line of physical inheritance. However, someone who is from spiritual science able to gain the conviction that what is living in him is not solely a collection of inherited characteristics and forces, but something that as a soul's spiritual essence goes from life to life, can, if spiritual science is for him no mere theory, but something that pervades his life, develop the awareness that alongside all the inherited characteristics and forces, there lives within him his soul spiritual essence, from which he is able to draw the forces through which he can overcome these difficulties, even if the line of inheritance might bear a strong indication of decadence. The awareness that one can gain from spiritual science does not only answer riddles of life of a theoretical nature, but answers all questions that influence our entire feeling life as riddles to which we have to have an answer in order to live within our soul. If we know nothing of that soul-spiritual essence that hastens from life to life, we feel ourselves weighed down beneath the yoke of heredity which oppresses us and makes us weak. We only feel ourselves to be strong and actively alive and to be living as people with a soul and spirit if we keep an upright stance with respect to our soul-spiritual essence and are able to say to ourselves, the forces of our soul-spiritual essence are unconquerable, for it is they alone that bring together what we have been given through the line of inheritance, and through them we are able from the center of our soul to bring what is seemingly doomed to decline to a true ascendancy. The solutions that spiritual science brings are inscribed into life itself, but spiritual science will only be able to bring its true fruits if it can be linked in this way with the whole orientation and inner conviction of the soul. And if we become strong and not only clever through spiritual science. 
but we also become more capable in our thinking, especially with regard to certain more delicate distinctions that life asks of us and gain in strength and judgment for a more refined conception of life. Just one example of this. When those who love to trace everything back to heredity investigate some significant individual with respect to his or her ancestral line, they will probably say that there are certain qualities that this person possesses which can be found in one ancestor, while other qualities can be traced back to another ancestor. And they may then say that this has all accumulated and been passed on, and the inherited characteristics have come together in this individual soul. They then coin the proposition. So you see that the genius stands at the end of a line of inheritance and has been inherited from the ancestors. When expressed in this way, the lines of the thought have, so to speak, become crossed. For who would have proved anything through this succession of ideas? Something would only have been proved if one were able to show that the genius stood at the beginning of a hereditary sequence, though not if he or she appears at the end of it. For if the genius appears at the end of a sequence of ancestors, if you will forgive my saying so, this proves nothing more than if one were to speak of someone falling into the water and being wet once he has come out. This proves only that he has passed through a particular element and has taken something from it, since someone who has emerged from water is indeed wet. If one wanted to prove something through the line of inheritance, one would have to show that the genius stands at the beginning and not at the end of a line of inheritance. But people will leave this well alone, for the world speaks otherwise. Spiritual science seeks everywhere to pose and answer questions in the right way. One will then see that spiritual science is not at variance with natural science, but also that an answer does not suffice. Probably the greatest wisdom for life will be drawn from spiritual science if the whole of human education can be placed in its light if man advances in his development in such a way that this is translated into becoming conscious of the soul's spiritual essence. The soul's spiritual essence will then develop with the person between birth and death in such a way that not only does that fullness of the soul that was spoken of earlier become a reality, but that the soul also becomes conscious of the second self, that germinal essence that becomes ever more concentrated the awareness of this will then pass over into a different form of life. The person concerned will indeed see how the time is coming when his hair loses its color, his face becomes wrinkled, and the forces that support the outer organs wane. But he will then look at what he has been developing from when he was young, at what is for him the residue and inheritance of an earlier life, and will feel in the way one does with the seed of a plant when the falling leaves signal the end of the plant's form, but the seed grows ever stronger. Thus the person will feel himself to be the seed of a new life, and will say to himself, What falls away from you must go through death, for you cannot remain within it, for there must be another vessel that you can indwell. You must build for yourself another body, for you have already prepared it within you. He will feel the life that he will live in the far future maturing within him. 
that repeated lives are not without a beginning and an end, and how the question as to what extent these incarnations of man's essential being have a beginning and an end can be answered, will be considered at a later point. If a person regards life as a seed for a following life, he will also see how this life again develops a seed. He is then not clinging to a theory of immortality that he investigates philosophically, but he sees a succession of lives blossom and thrive and fills himself with the awareness of immortality because he knows that from every life the seed for a new life must arise. It is in the constantly growing and hope-inspiring life seed that the human individual finds answers to questions relating to the riddles of life and death. He does not only answer them theoretically, but embraces, understands, and experiences immortality in his living inner experience, and does not merely say that he has understood immortality, but he embraces the soul in its essence as a being that cannot but be immortal because from every life it develops a new life seed, and the individual human being inwardly beholds the maturing of this new life seed. Hence we may say, spiritual science answers the question that arises from the riddles of life and death, not only theoretically. It does not only give a theoretical certainty, but it can inwardly transform our life in such a way that with the grasping of immortality we summon forces together and feel what goes from life to life and hence through all lives. So, in this way, theory is transformed into practice, the riddle of immortality, into a grasping of immortality itself. This is the best fruit of spiritual science, when it is transformed from mere study into something that truly lives within us. And one may say, when spiritual science is understood by a person in this sense, then it is not merely something that makes an experience comprehensible to him, but something that immerses itself into his own soul as a life force and dwells within him. Thus, we may conclude our studies for today by saying that spiritual science teaches us by also livingly demonstrating for the human soul what casting an I-E-Y-E over the rest of the world teaches us, the great vision of the constantly changing nature of life, and at the same time also of the eternity that forever manifests itself to us in all its changing nature. It teaches us the eternity present in everything temporal. As though in brass tablets the great life experience is inscribed in our soul that everything that lives in the universe lives only by creating within itself the seed for a new life. And the soul only gives itself up to old age and death in order to mature immortally toward constantly renewed life. The end of Lecture 5